Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I'm back and the holidays are here. This podcast should be coming out on Christmas Eve. Uh, For me, it is such a fun time of year. It's Definitely has a different meaning with a child who is starting to really be active right now. Wilder turns five a few days after Christmas on December 30th, actually. So we have a really, really busy upcoming week. Um, But, you know, what happens around this time is that we've all been doing things for other people, buying gifts, making time for performances and recitals and jamming our work in so we can take time off and we forget to take care of ourselves. So this is your reminder, get your workouts in, take care of yourself. And oh, a quick shameless plug for skirt sports. If you have actually waited until the very, very last minute, you can still buy a gift certificate from skirt sports and they're 20% off. Um, now through Christmas Day, and actually, give this a whirl. Get on our website, and once you buy your gift certificate, type in the code RUNTHISWORLD10, and you'll get 10% off of anything you put in your cart. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears. Um, today, we are going to talk about starting stuff. Uh, we're going to have a really cool conversation with a friend of mine, a guy I met many years ago named Mike Glauser. He is an expert on entrepreneurship. Uh, he's got experience as an entrepreneur. He started a couple companies that he later sold. Actually, they're called Golden Swirl Management Company and Northern Lights. It sounds like uh, some kind of toilet type thing. It's not. I'll leave that to you to listen to the podcast. Um He is an awesome guy. Basically, along the way, he always knew that he he understood and believed in the entrepreneurial spirit. He always knew he wanted to start his own businesses. And once he did, he started to gain more understand more of an understanding of what it takes to be successful. And over time, um, he sort of just moved up the ranks. He he's now the director executive director of the Clark Center for Entrepreneurship at um, Utah State University. I've actually gone and spoken there to the students. They have an incredible program. Um, In addition to starting and selling his own businesses and running the Entrepreneurship Center, he started a consulting company called My New Enterprise. And their whole goal is just to study entrepreneurs and try to pinpoint what makes them tick. And what's really cool about Mike is that he's willing to do things like combine personal pursuits, one of which is riding a bike. So a couple years ago in 2014, he rode his bike 4,000 miles across America and interviewed 100 entrepreneurs along the way. 
and they documented all these interviews, compiled all this information and came up with basically a formula of what it takes to be successful at starting something. And it doesn't mean you have to start your own business to want to listen to this episode or to read his book. There are a lot of lessons in there for the everyday person who just wants to be better in their life. His book is called The Main Street Entrepreneur, and we're going to talk about it in the podcast today. So on that note, we are going to bring Mike onto the show. All right, everyone. I am so, so excited to reconnect today with one of my really good friends, an incredible person doing great things in the world of entrepreneurship, Mike Glauser. Mike, thanks for coming on my show. I am so excited to be with you, Nicole. Are you ready to run this world with me today? <laughs> Let's do it. Yes. Well, you know, the um, podcast is based around the concept of the average time it takes the average American to run a 5K. And when I was researching this, I thought, you know, it's going to be like an eight or nine minute mile. And it turns out it's an 1147 mile. So it's a very doable distance for people at a very doable jog where we can actually have a conversation. So that's what we're going for today. So we have more time to talk then. Absolutely. At an 11 minute mile. I just, I love how, you know, our path has, our paths have crossed and, and kind of continued to cross over all these years. And it's really fun. Maybe we should give people a little background. I, I first met you when you came to Boulder, your team came to Boulder to start filming some entrepreneur stories because you had started a new venture called My New Enterprise. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Yep. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that the video that you guys did on Skirt Sports still exists, and it's the best video we've ever had done. And what's funny is your son Jay saw, you know, rewatched it again recently, and he goes, "That's like the worst video I've ever done." And I'm like, "Hey, it's all relative. You don't if you didn't say that out loud, I would have thought that was the most genius thing I've ever seen." You know, he just keeps getting better and better, and uh, he is doing uh, incredible work now. That's a little different than those early days, but but he's very talented. Well, we have so much to talk about today. You know, right off the bat, I just want to give a huge shout out. You wrote this incredible book called Main Street Entrepreneur. Uh, the subheading is build your dream company doing what you love, where you love. And I can guarantee everyone listening is shaking their head going, yes, if I'm not doing that, I want to be doing that. If I'm doing that, I'm relating to you right off the bat. So you're getting rave reviews on the book. I think Entrepreneur Magazine wrote you up as one of the best books for entrepreneurs. We got to hear more about this. Like, what the heck is this book all about? <laughs> well, I, I was really frustrated by the fact that businesses started by everyday men and women like you and I get absolutely no publicity. There are thousands of articles written about, you know, eBay and Google and Facebook, and if you take classes in entrepreneurship at universities, they teach the venture, venture capital model, which is go find some technology, uh, test it, go raise a whole bunch of money, scale it all over the world, sell it quickly. You have to have an exit strategy, and you're going to make a whole bunch of money. Well, almost nobody does that. Only one half of 1% of businesses follow that model, and the rest of us, 28 million small business owners, we, we go out and build these, you know, half a million, one million, two million, five million dollar businesses. And these businesses employ more than half of us in America. They create most of our new technologies and they create all of our net jobs. And no one is really talking about that as being exciting or interesting. 
And so what we've done in our company, My New Enterprise, we've really tried to focus on everyday men and women that are building these really fun companies. They're doing what they love. They're flying under the radar of the media. And having done this now for many years, we believe really strongly that anybody can do it. They just have to learn what the key concepts are to make a business successful. And we also feel like more and more of us are going to have to do this because you know, as you know, and everyone knows, jobs are going away in almost every field due to technology. So that's kind of what we do is we focus on people doing what they love, uh, doing it where they live, and building these successful, great, small businesses that employ themselves and maybe some family members and maybe a dozen other people. You bring up a really good point right at the beginning about this maybe concept of what success should look like. And it basically involves before your company ever gets off the ground or makes its first dollar, you have to have an exit strategy in place. And you're sitting here going, I don't even know if it's going to work. And I think this is something I'm going to love. Do I already have to think about losing it? I don't. So, (laughs) you know, maybe just tell me a little more about your feelings on that. Is that really important or not? I don't think it's important at all. And I, I, in fact, I have taught at universities and I just get tired of you know, I judge competitions and all the judges are saying, hey, this isn't scalable. We can't take it across America. We can't take it all over the world. And they reject great little companies that are actually cash flowing over these big pipe dreams that are going to be these mega public companies. And uh, so that's been really, really frustrating. It's very possible to create a small business doing something that you really enjoy. It's more exciting now than it ever has been. It's more possible now than it ever has been. But we find most people just don't have the confidence. They don't, they don't believe that they can do it. And so if we teach in the universities that you're going to build this, you know, venture back public company, we're kind of telling all these students that they can become president of the United States, which, you know, of course, they won't. In fact, we did some research to show that if, if you played high school football, you have a better chance of playing in the NFL than you have of starting a venture backed company. And so we figured the 28 million small business owners are just kind of being neglected and we need to tell their stories. And so that's kind of been our focus for for years. So let's talk about actually the book, Main Street Entrepreneur. It's the concept, 100 cities, 100 entrepreneurs, right? Yes. You know, I think actually it'd be really cool for you to kind of take people through, first of all, the light bulb, what went off and made you think you've got to dig in and then the process of how you went out there crossed the country and interviewed all of these wonderful entrepreneurs well there's two stories there's kind of the uh socially accepted story and then the true story oh i like that let's let's and dig I'll, I'll into both the, i'll <laughs> tell you the true story is we really wanted to ride our bikes across america i i used to run for years and then my knees started having problems so i switched to biking about 10 years ago and i I absolutely love the feeling of you know flying on a bike, the freedom, and so I've dreamed about riding my bike across America. I wanted to see it from the seat of a bike, and being an entrepreneur uh, in our company, we started brainstorming. Well, you know, is there a way to do this as a business project and actually get it paid for and maybe even make some money doing it? And so we combined our second interest interest of interviewing entrepreneurs and writing articles and books and. We put them together and it just turned out great. Now, what we tell people in the book is that, you know, if you're going to study big corporations, you get on jets, right? You fly across America and you get in limousines and you stay in chain hotels. 
well, if you want to see these really unique small businesses in these great towns, uh, you got to use a different methodology. So we chose the bike so we could see it up close and personal. And uh, so that's what we tell people when we go out and give speeches. So you didn't just like ride your bike on the shoulder of interstates. You guys mapped out a course that was like the old Great American Trail or something, right? Yeah. If any of the listeners are cyclists, this is a phenomenal thing to do. There's this trail called the the Transamerica Bike Trail. And it was created in 1976 during the bicentennial. And it was created to celebrate small town America as well as the most beautiful scenery in America. And so this is a designated route. It's even marked Highway 76. And it's mostly small two-lane highways. Often you have a very safe wide shoulder. And it starts in Florence, Oregon, right on the beach uh, in the Pacific Ocean. And it ends up in Yorktown, Virginia on the Atlantic Ocean. And so you go through, uh, right through the heartland of America, you go through Oregon, and then you go into Idaho, and then into you go through Colorado, Wyoming, Colorado, and Kansas, and Missouri, and, and so on, and you finish up, uh, Kentucky's really interesting, and you finish up in Virginia. So that was, once we knew, the first thing we had to do was select the route that would be safe, and that would give us the most cities possible. And this route has over 100 cities on it. And so once we selected that route, it was very easy to select the cities. And then uh, we had a research team that just dug into those cities to find out, you know, who's doing business here and who's winning awards and who's growing. And uh, we went to chambers of commerce and we went to websites and newspaper articles. And we we had hundreds of companies and then we narrowed it down to a sample uh, that looked like America. So we wanted uh, bigger companies, smaller companies. We wanted men. We wanted women. We wanted older entrepreneurs, younger entrepreneurs. We wanted tech entrepreneurs and manufacturers and uh, every kind of company there was. And uh, so that's pretty much what we did. We got up and rode almost 100 miles every day, 80 to 125 miles. That was the range of the ride, the daily ride. And that would take us, you know, five or six hours. And then all afternoon we would – basically set up our cameras and we would interview these entrepreneurs that we had found along the way. So we tended to interview two, maybe even three a day. So we were busy. We were working. Okay. I used to be an Ironman athlete and I used to do these kinds of training days. And I have to say I was brain dead at the end of every long training day. Five to six hours of working out makes you a little less sharp usually. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how you did it. You had, okay. So first of all, I do know a little bit. You guys had an RV, right? We had, yes, uh, a motorhome with all of our uh, film gear, film equipment and a studio inside. And we had a refrigerator and a stove. And uh, of course we slept in it some nights. We had beds in there. So, so that followed us. And, um, you know, we didn't, we did it supported. We didn't carry our sleeping bags and our food on the bikes. Well, that's good because that would have put this in a whole nother. <laughs> that wouldn't have been 100 <laughs> days either. Let yeah, me we tell had you. hundreds of pounds of camera gear. And, but I'll tell you what was really awesome that you'll be interested in is, you know, I, we trained really hard for this. I started with a base of 100 miles a week, and then every month I bumped that by 50 miles. And so for a few months before this event, we were doing 300 miles a week on the bikes and then when we started the trip, we were doing 500 to 600 miles a week. So we doubled our weekly mm-hmm. distance. In the first probably almost two weeks, 10 days to two weeks, uh, everything was sore. You know, our backs, our rear ends, our legs, 
our necks, and we were thinking, you know, what were we thinking? But this is what was cool is it got easier and easier and easier. And after about a month, doing 100 miles a day was was a piece of cake. It wasn't even hard to do. And our calorie burning of calories went from six, seven thousand a day towards the last couple of weeks. We were eating probably, you know, three thousand calories a day and riding our bikes 100 miles. So the body adjusts and wow. it, it said, you know what, these guys are serious. They're going to stress me like this every single day. And it just adjusted so it was easier to do and we needed less fuel to do it. And when we hit the beach in Virginia, Sean and I looked at each other and said, you know what, we could turn around and ride back if we needed to, no sweat, no problem. And we really felt like we could have ridden back another 4,000 miles. It just, it was amazing how, how much easier it got. And when it was done, we, we just didn't think it was that hard. Oh, that is so funny because I remember a feeling like that. That's a momentary feeling, by the way because the first day back, you would have been like, what are we doing? I remember when um, I had my kid almost five years ago, and there was no sleep for months, right? But the first night I got like five hours straight of sleep, I felt like superwoman. I was like, oh, I could go totally back to work full time right now. In fact, we should just get pregnant again. Like in one day, it was like, I could do all this. The next day, that was a pipe dream. It was like you get these momentary <laughs> flashes of, you know, it's surreal. What's really cool, too, is I've always felt like exercise and free thinking go hand in hand. And being an entrepreneur involves a lot of like opening your mind to ideas and figuring out crafty and creative and scrappy ways to accomplish those ideas. And combining fitness and exercise with the entrepreneurial spirit just seems to make sense. Yeah, here's something that uh, you might be interested in. There's a great book called Brain Rules. It's by John Medina, and he does uh, he summarizes all the research that's ever been done on how we learn and how the mind works. And it's it's just fascinating. He concludes that the very worst way we could ever learn is to sit us in a classroom and have someone lecture to us. And he says uh, the research shows that if you're up and active and moving, you're walking, you're running. You're standing up at your desk. Your brain actually releases a chemical. It's like a fertilizer that prepares you to learn and that people learn and remember things uh, far better when they're moving and active. And so he kind of proposes a whole new way to to rethink education where you, 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 know, you meet and you go for a walk and you talk about concepts while you're out walking or while you're out running or while you're cycling or something, but, you, but you're moving. So we learn better. We remember things better. We're more creative if we're if we're moving, and so that's why I love endurance fitness, long distance things. Oh, me too. And I, I think most of the people listening can really relate. This is definitely a podcast for active people who want to, you know, keep their lives moving it forward in a positive way, and they're trying to fit their workouts into these busy schedules. And knowing that while you're out there working out, you're actually doing better things for your brain. I think that's a really good way to justify getting that workout in. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, so along the Absolutely. way, you interviewed 100 entrepreneurs, right? Roughly, maybe. <laughs> it was exactly 100. The last guy Whew. on the beach, uh, uh, Hank Vixelio, who owns a, uh, he makes custom beautiful jewelry, was number 100. So, Wow. And he he got to have a beach interview. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, his <laughs> shop's right on the beach, and he's creating these beautiful customized pieces of jewelry and shipping them around the country. Just an amazing guy. But, you know, everyone we met was amazing. So you came up with this sort of, I guess what bubbled up to the surface were 
nine, I don't know, truths or nine commonalities um, among successful entrepreneurs, right, through this process? Yeah, we were looking for the fundamental building blocks that determine whether business uh, succeeds or fails. So there's hundreds of things you have to do. You you know you've been doing business for a long time. There's so many things you have to do. But if you had to really say, well, which ones make the most difference? We call them the differences that make the difference between success and failure. So we were looking for things that we heard in almost every story that we collected. And then we, I mean, we went through hours and hours of film and uh, listened to these stories over and over again. And um, we created these categories of topics and we narrowed that down to nine things that were pretty common to almost all of these businesses. So we basically in the book say this is a roadmap for building your own company. If you follow these things and, and we've done quite a bit of, you know, we've started lots of companies and we've helped start a lot of businesses and consulted with probably hundreds of entrepreneurs. And we, we feel like your chance of success goes up to about 80 to 90 percent if you follow these practices versus the national average of uh, 50 50 failures 50 percent wow um and that's that's a little bit intimidating i know and yet at the same time when like you said if they're focused on the things that are actually going to work instead of being shiny object followers so let's just say i you know as a entrepreneur i am definitely guilty of being, I guess, the idea person who sometimes has trouble staying focused or sticking with an idea long enough before I want to move on to the next idea. Does that okay. ring a bell? Yeah. So it, as you're you know, going through this, and, and what we're going to do is encourage everybody to go out and buy the book, hello, so we're not going to give it all away, but if there were maybe the top three things that without these three things, you definitely do not have a chance for success, what would three things be that you can share with us okay the first one which was clear in every single interview was these pe people were driven by a strong and engaging purpose it was something that they were very excited about that was very meaningful in fact of the hundred people that we interviewed not a single person said mentioned money as a primary driver it just didn't come up and so they find something that uh, intrigues them. They were trying to create jobs in their city. One man in Baker City, Oregon, uh, Richard Chavs, his goal is to create 100 jobs in the city that he loves. And he was just driven. When we met him uh, this summer, he's up to 70. And, you know, wow. you're a good example of that. You finished your run and you went home and you wrote pretty on a piece of paper. You wanted to create clothing for uh, women athletes that was pretty that, you know, Mm -hmm. flattered uh, you and that you felt comfortable in and you've kind of morphed into wanting to just help women be successful and if you were just going to sell widgets to factories I don't think you would have been as successful as you've been Nicole. no so, that's true and I probably wouldn't still be doing it <laughs> yeah so they were doing fun things they were solving problems they were creating jobs they were doing things they were passionate about they were trying to invent uh, solutions to problems. They wanted to be give better service than they'd been getting in their industry. So that was the first thing that we noticed is uh, just a strong purpose. And this is interesting. They not only had a strong purpose, but they could pretty pretty easily articulate it so that other people knew what that purpose was. I mean, doesn't if you have a strong purpose and you communicate it, you're able to attract people to your team that feel the same way. And also your customers are excited to do business with you. Uh, the great book by Simon Sinek is Start With Why, and he shows very convincingly that people don't buy uh, what we do, they buy why we do it. 
Ooh, if you want to create a, a commu- if you want to create a community of fans that follow you and buy your products, they have to also know what that purpose is and identify with it. So that's kind of a a first thing we always ask people is why are you doing this? And if they say yeah. I just need to make some money, we say well you you probably better think of something else that that is more engaging than that because financial gain alone is not enough to get you through those three to five years where you're trying to produce sustainability. So so that was a big one we saw right off the bat. Well, and I, I think you're right. Like the, you're going to go be tested so much throughout your journey that if you don't know the reason behind what you're doing or you're not relating to it every single day, you're just going to lose touch with it and you're not going to be able to persevere when things get really hard. Yeah. So here's a second one. Um, this one I find fascinating. We say, uh, build on what you know. I'll have to explain this a bit. About a third of the people we interviewed actually worked in the industry, and about a third worked in a related industry, and then another third had never worked in an industry and knew nothing about it, but they were serious users of the products from the industry. They, we call them user entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's that's what you were. Yeah. You, you're a user entrepreneur. You I'm a user. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know the apparel industry, but you, in fact, I talk about you when I do workshops that you did not know that industry at all, but you knew the products and you knew what women wanted and what you liked and what you didn't like. And, and so this is fascinating because the, the Kauffman Foundation just did a study and they found that about well, 10 to 15% of businesses each year started by user entrepreneurs that don't know their industries. But five years out of those that survive and hit the five-year anniversary, 46% of them are these user entrepreneurs. So uh-huh. they're also represented in the success category, even though they didn't know the industry. But what it says is that you really need to know the products. You need to be wearing them and using them and like them. And you need to know who's making them and what works and what doesn't work. And, and, uh, and, and then when you launch, you have to continue to use the product. So that's really critical. But a lot of these people, they had worked in the industry and they started something in that same industry because they knew the customers, they knew the suppliers, they saw the missing pieces and so on. Um, I, I um, can definitely agree with that. But I also, it makes sense that the user entrepreneurs are going to have a, a higher success rate. There's, it might just be even more passion or connection. Yeah, and so when we work with entrepreneurs, we say, we take them through a process. What industries do you know? What, where have you worked? And then we say, okay, what are the products you love and that you use? And we try to come up with some ideas to test based on their experience. Uh, if you know nothing about the industry and you know nothing about the products, you've never used them, your chance of success is almost zero. Yep, that's that's a good point. So that's uh, another one I'll mention. I'll mention a couple more, but maybe more briefly, uh, you've done this. Uh, they build this supporting cast of mentors that help them learn things they don't know. And, you know, right there in Boulder, uh, Justin Gold, who you've interviewed, was a master at building a brain trust of people that helped him learn all about UPC codes in the food industry. And he'll say today that he couldn't have done it without his mentors. And he would almost stalk them. He would go to places where they were. Uh, one gentleman, he said he met at a trailhead and ran with him every day. And so these people were not shy about admitting I don't know certain things and going out and finding people that could mentor them and it really helps jumpstart the venture as opposed to having to learn everything on your own through trial and error. 
You so know, that's just a quick one I'll mention. Oh, and I love that. And by the way, he you're talking about Justin Gold, who founded Justin's Nut Butters, who eventually and just recently sold his business for an astronomically awesome amount of money. And not because he was out to make money. It was because he needed a push to get to the next level. And uh, he was he's brilliant. So, yeah, he's one of the uh, former podcasts. You'll have to dig into the show notes and go into the archives for that one. Really cool. But actually, I wanted to ask you something yeah, about I- this concept. Um, so I think that a lot of times when you're starting out, I remember experiencing this, and I find, and I still do at times. <laughs> Sometimes you feel this need to fake it, like act as if you know more than you do. It's the fake it till you make it kind of concept. And and I think part of it is that you just don't want to look stupid. Like you want to look like you know what you're talking about, even though you don't. So I guess that's a question I have as an entrepreneur, somebody out there who may have an idea and is getting ready to move it forward. Is it okay to be open and honest about what you do and don't know? I think that's very, very important. Um, Most mentors, and I know angel investors, uh, they want to know that you're honest with yourself and that you're willing to admit that you, they want to know that you are very aware of some things that are critical to the venture, but they want you to say, I don't know, rather than try to make things up. But, you know, you can appear very confident and you say, you know what, I don't know as much about that right now, but I will go find out and I know I can learn that. And so you can't be afraid to stay, uh, you know, just one step ahead of the game. I'll I'll tell you quickly a kind of funny story. I, I studied music as an undergraduate music composition so I was learning to play different instruments and I thought it'd be really awesome to learn to play the banjo and I went and took three lessons and then I showed up for the fourth lesson and the the owner of the music store said you know I've got some good news and bad news the bad news is the banjo player just quit and we can't find anyone anywhere so the good news is you're going to be our new banjo teacher <laughs> teacher and so I laughed, and I was a friend of hers, and I was joking, yeah, sure, sure. And she said, no, I'm serious. She said, we have a lot of younger kids. You're the oldest student. If you'll stay one week ahead of the students and learn one really good song every week and teach them that, I'll hire you. Oh, that's so great. So after three lessons, I became a, a banjo teacher, and I've used that analogy over and over again. You just have to stay one week ahead, you know? <laughs> I love that. First of all, you play the banjo. That's so awesome. <laughs> Well, I have (laughs) in my past. So, you know, you have to be very confident. You have to be very honest. You have to believe you can gain the knowledge. If someone's learned this, I can learn it too. But you also have to, you know, be honest and tell the truth and just say, hey, I don't know as much about that right now, but I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, that's, I think that is, that last statement is really key. So, okay, a lot of people have ideas but most people never take them forward. And I can't tell you the number of people, especially in the early years, who would stop me and be like, I had that idea, like they, like they were mad at me or something, like to make a <laughs> skirt for fitness and running. And, and I would just look at them and be like, well, why didn't you do it? You know, and, and there's a lot of excuses people have. So I know what helped me go forward, but is there any tip or trick you have for people listening who have ideas? Who, who know in their heart that it's something they want to pursue, but they have no idea how to take the first step. Yeah, we tried to make this really simple in the book. It's, you know, you learn from people that have done it. And there's a whole chapter called Launch Opportunities, Not Ideas. And there's a huge difference between an idea and a true business opportunity. And 
without going into a ton of detail, uh, it's all in the book there, but there's basically five, five things that if these five things are in place, you have a very, very good chance of building a successful company. And so we work with people to put these five things in place. And we don't really judge ideas as being good or bad. We just say, how do we put these five factors in place? And if we can, then we'll launch this thing. And if we can't, we'll go on to something else. And so we actually call it our NERCM model, N-E-R-C-M. Mm-hmm. So those are that's an acronym for the first one is need. You have to actually verify and have firsthand primary evidence from interacting with potential customers that they're saying, I, I would like this, I need this, I'll buy it. The E is for that experience. You've either worked in the industry or you're a user entrepreneur and you really know the products. The R is for resources and you don't always need financial resources but you have to have the resources to cobble together a prototype that you can test quickly and cheaply and to see if you know anyone will actually buy it and the C in the NERCA model is for a, an initial buying customer you have to find someone that will maybe even sign a purchase order or say yeah call me when it's ready I'll buy it for sure and that's kind of what we do with with Kickstarter and these crowdfunding platforms, you try to sell stuff before you build it. And if they buy it, then you go out and create it. And so that's never been easier than, than it is right now. And then M, uh, the fifth component is the business model. You know, you need gross margins of about 50%, a net income of 10 to 20% from your pricing structure. And if you can do all those five things, you know, the, the risk is very small in launching something. So. You launch an opportunity, you don't just launch an idea, and you take an idea to start with, and you and you go through those factors to try to turn it into an opportunity, and then you launch it, and your success rate goes up dramatically. That's such a good way to reframe idea to opportunity, and uh, I think that's definitely a takeaway for people. And afterwards, when you, I, I'm going to encourage you to get over to our show notes, and I'll, I'll include a link to the book. And of course, when you get it, you're going to go right to page 40 which is the page that talks about Nicole de Boom and Skirt Sports. <laughs> um, so let's just talk really quickly too about money because I think a lot of people are sort of paralyzed and think that they need a lot of money to get any kind of opportunity off the ground. Is this true? Okay, here's a great story that comes right from your city of Boulder. It's uh, Dr. Alan Lim, the founder of Scratch Labs. Hey, we know do you, them. Do you know hey, Alan? Alan, we need to have him on the show, don't we? He is awesome. He's brilliant. But anyway, you know his background. He was uh, working for the cycling teams, uh, pro-level cycling teams. And the complaint was that his riders were all getting stomach aches from the syrupy gels and the drinks. And so he created some hydration drinks with real fruit in them. So his orange drink has real orange in it. His strawberry drink has real strawberries in it. And he was selling it to people. He wasn't selling it to him. He was giving it to his riders in these, it was white powder in plastic baggies because they were under contract to drink Powerade or Gatorade and they weren't supposed to be drinking his stuff. White powder in plastic baggies? That could be a little (laughs) questionable depending on where you are. (laughs) In fact, his his whole story from beginning to end is how to build a business with no money. So he actually took these the products down to the local hardware store and he mixed them in there. He borrowed their paint shakers and mixed them in their paint shakers and then put them in these baggies. And all the riders all across the world were using his products. So he thought, okay, I got a business opportunity here. People want it. They're using it. But he had uh, very little money. So what he did is they went and found an old funnel cake cart 
that was used at a fair, and he turned it into a burrito kitchen. They just rebuilt it, turned it into a burrito kitchen, and then he traveled across the country in this pulling this burrito cart, and he would sell burritos and natural foods at all these 10Ks and marathons and cycling events, and then he would market his hydration drinks, and so the burrito cart paid for his marketing costs, and at the end of that first year, having built this now national, international business, his marketing uh, total expenditure was $800. That is absolutely insane. I love that guy. You know what's really funny? I have a great story about Scratch Labs. Um, They definitely did start sort of under the radar and uh, just sort of pushing things out, and I think to gauge the reaction. But I went out for a bike ride. So this is the same loop that we did when you guys hit Boulder on your cross-country tour. And uh, the the first stoplight out of town is this very busy intersection where there's a lot of cyclists. And if you come and visit Boulder, it's going to be Highway 36 and Broadway. It's kind of where you shoot out of town and go north and you're on some roads with great shoulders. And there was this little girl, literally like six, and she was standing in the middle. There's usually like a homeless person there who's begging. And that day there was a little girl standing there and she had like a basket And as uh, the bicyclist pulled up, she would like hand it all of us these little, it was like a little um, rice cake. That's what it was. And so it was a scratch lab rice cake and literally no money, nothing. It was just like, here, here's a rice cake for your ride today. And you could look (laughs) over and you saw some adults on the other side of the road, but it definitely endeared all of us to this brand that didn't even exist yet. And by the way, absolutely delicious and you know, we definitely got the sense for what they stand for, which was real food. So it was really, really cool. I love that. I just love that you're surrounded constantly by this incredible energy. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting what we do. But let me mention one more that is, I think, really important. I call it pivot to multiple revenue streams. And you talked about keeping your focus. You want to jump around and do a lot of different things. And you really can't succeed if you chase every shiny thing that comes by. But what we found was these entrepreneurs had created uh, several streams of revenue, that, but they were all related to their, their core business. And so here's an example. This couple, uh, Benny and Julie Benson, they were engineers in L.A., and they just got tired of the traffic, the smog, the crime. And so they said to themselves, let's move to a fun small town. And they drove up and down the coast and found Sisters, Oregon. And 10 days later, they had quit their jobs and moved to Sisters, Oregon. So now they have to find something to do, and being engineers, they started uh, finding clients to design these biogas power plants, which was one of their specialties. And before long, they had uh, a number of clients, and they were designing these plants, and they realized that these customers uh, were having a harder time finding people to build these unique biogas plants. So then they launched a construction division to, to now build the plants. So they started designing them, then they started building them, and then they realized people were having a hard time monitoring them and managing output, so they created a suite of software to manage these plants remotely from Sisters, Oregon. So now they provide a complete solution. They're a one-stop shop. They design the plant, they build the plant, they monitor the plant, where before customers had to go to three different places to get their plant up and running. And so they they diversified based on things customers were buying elsewhere that they needed that were related to their product line. And the funny thing was they were flying in and out of the airport so much that they then bought the airport, and now they own the airport in Sisters, Oregon. Oh, my. (laughs) 
And that then is they built such a great some, story. <laughs> then they built some offices uh, at the airport and leased space to other entrepreneurs. And so, you know, they have these wow. five streams of related revenue. They're not. It's like they're juggling balls that are all related, and they're not juggling too many, and they're not juggling too few. If you only have one product, you know, you're very vulnerable. But if you have a suite of products, I call it a portfolio of products that are all related, your chance of survival, um, you know, is far better. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I heard Peter Drucker uh, while he was still alive speak. He was in his 90s, and he said in the future, uh, businesses are going to have to look at their product lines as portfolios, like stock portfolios, where you – you really go after the top 20 or 30, you maintain the middle, and then the bottom ones, you just drop out. You don't hang on to things that aren't working any longer. And so these entrepreneurs, and you're you're an example of that. You've done uh, several different things since you launched your company, and you have revenue from uh, multiple, mm -hmm. multiple sources. Yep, we do. And we're constantly trying to figure out what's next in the crystal ball and to find new ways that you can maybe not innovate a product line, but you can innovate the way you do business. Yeah. So that's that's where our new innovation would lie. So it's really interesting. Yeah, most a lot of new innovations now are not products or services, but they're business models. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's a way to get very creative. So I'm interested in the fact that you're an entrepreneur teaching entrepreneurs, <laughs> which is really cool. It's like a, a box and a box and a box and a box. And <laughs> I know a bit about your entrepreneurial background. I would love for you to share uh, how you, first of all, I'm interested in this concept of entrepreneurial thinking as well. So I don't know how this fits in here, but how did you become an entrepreneur? Why did you gravitate towards building your own businesses? And tell us about some of your successes. Well, when I was a college student, I was intrigued by this idea of building an organization and having it be a great place to work, having it be an envy of the industry. And so I went straight through school to learn about that. I went right through a, a bachelor's, master's, and PhD as a kid and had never worked anywhere. And so I, I got this PhD in organizational studies. I was 27 years old. And I started teaching at the University of North Carolina. And I walked into the first MBA course that I taught, and it was an executive MBA. And I was the youngest guy in the room by probably 15 years so I knew a lot about organizations and had read a lot of books, but these people really knew a lot about real organizations. So I, I quickly decided that if I was to become a thought leader in this field and I needed to quit the safe you know, haven of academics and go out into the world and build some companies. So, so I stayed a few years in academics and then left and uh, built uh, – first it was a real estate development company, then I built a uh, a retail food company and then a wholesale food company. It was called Northern Lights. And we were the first in the U.S. to build a full line of uh, non-fat frozen dessert products, frozen yogurt products. Oh, that sounds amazing. Why don't do, how come I don't know of Northern Lights though? Are you on commercial grocery store shelves or in freezers? It was sold. No, it wasn't a retail product. It was a food service product sold to people to use in their restaurants and their cafeterias. And so it's it was sold through uh, places like Cisco Foods, Southwest mm -hmm. Traders, and it was sold to uh, people that had soft serve machines. Oh, got it, yep. You know, it's funny, it reminds me of that Seinfeld episode. Are you a Seinfeld guy? <laughs> my kids are. Oh, <laughs> And I've my. seen the one about the yogurt. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was like, it really wasn't fat-free, but um, no, I'm sure yours was. 
Okay. But uh, yeah, no, it's great. That's so interesting. So you get into this uh, ice cream or yogurt business. What happened with it? Well, the goal was really to practice what I'd been preaching as a professor. I, I wanted to prove that I could do it. And I was a little nervous about it, actually. And so we we were building a company that we hoped would become you know, the envy of an industry. So we created all of our own products. We, we did all of our own R&D. We created all of our own products. We distributed our products wholesale. We sold them into our own retail stores. We had a chain of retail stores around the country. And then uh, a company, a publicly traded company up in uh, Toronto, Canada, bought the business. And uh, it was just a fabulous experience. We grew up to, we had 500 employees at the time of the sale. Wow. At that point, I then went, launched into this second part of my career, which is, okay, I've, I've learned all about organizations, I've studied them, I've taught about them, now I've done a few, I'm going to now go back to teaching again. And so I started writing and speaking and teaching at universities again after that experience. So as, uh, as you brought your personal experience into the mix, you realize, wow, what we're being taught in school isn't really real life entrepreneurship, like you're teaching people foundational you know, pieces of how to become an entrepreneur, but when you actually put it into practice, did it help you create a new curriculum? Yeah. When I sold that company, and this was, you know, in the late 90s, I seriously thought about going back to the university now, having had business experience, and I was really frustrated with how entrepreneurship was being taught. It was being taught by typically tenure-track professors, no business experience, no entrepreneurship experience. It was very theoretical. It was research-based. The findings were, you know, not significant. And so my thinking was the best people to teach entrepreneurship are those that have actually done it. And that's when we started collecting these stories and these oral histories. We thought if we, if we go out and every year interview 100 entrepreneurs, and then we sort through that data and we create articles and books and training programs from the real world, that's how people are going to learn the best. So when I uh, joined the John Huntsman School of Business at Utah State, they one of the conditions was we got to create a whole new curriculum. And they said, great. And so we created a, a six-course program that actually follows the steps entrepreneurs take to start and build a company from A to Z. So you actually, if a student enters our program, they have to actually build a business as they go through these courses. They don't just read books and talk about it. So they have to form an entity and they have to form a company and build a brand. And it's open to students from every major. So we have engineers in the program. We have science students. We have music students. We have landscape architecture students. And uh, we have, we'll have about a thousand students enroll in our courses this year. I've been to speak at uh, your program at Utah State, and I was blown away by... I guess how advanced the students seem compared to me when I was in college and I wasn't thinking in the, the way that you've helped inspire them to think is so impressive. But I also see a difference in the new generation that's coming up. Are you seeing any trends in the next generation of entrepreneurs? Yeah, we're, you know, we, we teach entrepreneurship as the new leadership model for this century. And so we don't tell them you have to start your own business, but you have to know how to innovate. You have to know how to problem solve. You have to know how to create value. And whether you start a company or a nonprofit or a school or a church or maybe whether you work in corporate America, you have to have this set of skills. And uh, if they're not, if they want to build their own business, we work with them on their own business. If they uh, want to work for someone else, they still have to create a new product or a new service or build something. But we're trying to teach this whole 
this whole new attitude about careers that, you know, I have to create value and I may or may not be able to find a job someday. So I have to find out what communities need and I know how to have to know how to meet needs in communities and get feedback from customers and, and improve my products and improve my services constantly. And these students absolutely love this, this concept of entrepreneurship. It's, uh, at least at our school, it's become one of the most uh, popular tracks at the school. That lecture series that you spoke in a few years ago, we've had to move it to an auditorium that's uh, twice as big, and the class filled up in one day. We now have 400 students in that class with a wow. waiting list of 50 students. Wow. So next year, we're going to have to move it to even a bigger auditorium. So they, they love the idea of uh, creating valuable things that people mm-hmm. need. Yep, I, I and I really got that from from the students there okay personal question being an entrepreneur takes a lot out of you and it's very oh I guess you become very singularly focused and it's very consuming um how do you stay married (laughs) I'm not kidding because I have to say like it's a miracle that Tim and I are still married I know the ups and downs that come with this kind of passionate work we do so what do you think what have you seen out there and your experience too you've been married for a long time yeah we uh uh, have a fabulous marriage. We've been married 38 years, Mary and I. Wow. And uh, that is amazing. To each other, the same person the whole time. <laughs> That's kind of important. <laughs> so, um I'll tell you what we've done is we've we've created these companies together. Mary's very entrepreneurial. She's a phenomenal business partner. So that food business, I had all the experience in building a company. She had all the experience in foods and nutrition and exercise and health. And so we built that together, so that was great. But I'll tell you what works the best for us and for everybody else is, you know, you have to take breaks. You have to, you can't do your business all the time. It's like being on the freeway with the pedal to the metal, you're gonna burn out that engine. And I encourage everybody to plan into your week breaks where you go do fun things. And Mary and I have always tried to travel somewhere fun, you know, three or four times during the year, just the two of us. We go out together still, like we did when we were dating. Uh, we do a lot of races and events together. And uh, we find that if you take breaks, you come back to your business and you like it even more and you're more, your batteries are charged as opposed to you just doing it over and over and over and over again. And so we schedule into our week and our month uh, things to do that don't have to do anything with the business. I think that's so smart and it really I can relate to it as an athlete too because you have to have an off season. You the seasonality of is important for anything you do in life. So I, I appreciate that. Um I have a couple more questions. We've run over our time. I always do this. But this is so fun for me. I love it because one of my passions is also being an entrepreneur in business and really soaking it in from people like you. By the way, you may not know this, but you're one of my mentors. I never just I never asked you, but there you go. <laughs> um I actually think you should rename that uh, chapter to um have coffee meetings or get amped up on caffeine because when you're out there looking for people to to learn from that's what you're going to be doing having a lot of meetings so we're mentoring each other nicole i love it uh, look up to you and admire what you've done oh my gosh well okay one one more question what's the biggest mistake you see entrepreneurs make well i think that uh, of these nine practices in the book if people do them their odds go up for success dramatically and if they don't do do them the you know the chances of succeeding go down so if they do uh, anyone, if they fail to do any one of these things, the failure rate goes up. But I think probably the biggest mistake that I see is that 
they form the wrong kinds of teams early on. They get their roommate involved or their brother or their best friend, and they don't they don't think through what does this business need and what skills do I have and what skills are missing and how do I go out and find someone that has the missing skills that complements me as opposed to just bringing someone in that uh, then later it doesn't work. And it's, you know, getting rid of a business partner is like going through a divorce. It's painful. Yeah, that's that's a really and, good one. I've I've heard that quite a bit too. I agree. So I always say, you know, hold hands before you go steady, go steady before you get engaged, get engaged before you get married. And if there's a way to work together with someone to see how well things things work before you actually form an entity and divide up the ownership, you know, you can do that by using interns. You can, uh, you know, hire people based on commission pay as opposed to a salary. There's a lot of things you can do to find out if you work well together and if they're the right people before you formalize the ownership of a new company. Very good point and very good advice. Those early teams can be uh, a tough for sure because you bring on a lot of people who are friends, fans, or just want to help you and they're often not the right fit. Yeah. Um, okay. One other quickie here is this concept of entrepreneurial thinking. Um, do you think there's value in having that kind of thinking even if you don't start your own business? Like would other companies be interested in hiring people who think like an entrepreneur? Yeah, absolutely. There is quite a bit of research now that's been done that shows that people that are trained in entrepreneurship or take some classes in entrepreneurship do better in the corporate world. They often end up in, you know, R&D and new product development or running new divisions and they're they uh, survey show they're just happier with their jobs because they're creating, they're using those entrepreneurial skills within an existing organization. True. And so yeah, there even some colleges are now requiring uh, an entrepreneurship course in the general ed requirements. It's just something they're saying everyone needs to know how to create new things, and they there might be not be jobs for everyone in the future. So we we got to teach people how to do this. That's just so cool. We didn't even have it when I was in college, and I remember my dad when I was a younger, you know, high school college age person. He he said, "Hey, I really think there's a need for a class that I could probably teach called the real world." because no one's teaching you the real world in college. And I think you have finally stumbled upon this and you are giving people that experience. Well, that's what we're trying to do. And uh, we're having a lot of fun trying to do it. Great. Well, okay, we're down to the very final question. This question I ask every person who comes on the show. And it's that for those people listening, if you have one nugget, one piece of advice that will make them run their worlds in a bigger and better way than before, what would that be? I would say pursue things that you're very passionate about and excited about, and life will be just so much fuller and so much richer, and there are ways to create businesses around what you're passionate about. Perfect. Bingo. Nailed it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing and being so open and honest. It's great. I, I just love this topic and I love the work you're doing out there in the world. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking with you, Nicole. All right. It's a wrap. How's that for a little holiday inspiration? I love how Mike summed it up. I'm going to leave it at this. Pursue things that you're very passionate about and life will be so much fuller and so much richer. And for those of you who think, yeah, but the things I'm passionate about could never be turned into a business, I think you need to look up Mike Glauser 
and try to figure out how you can change that mindset because you really can be living a life that includes all the things you love and combines them together. So everyone, on that note, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and we'll see you next week.